It's interesting, this whole idea of the disciples following Jesus, because you have the disciples following him in the spring of his first year of ministry. But apparently we get to something like the summertime and they begin to follow him full time. And that's a very interesting um, idea, pattern, because many people are never allowed to quit their day jobs to follow Jesus. You know, essentially, that's what you pay me to do and the other paid staffers. But there's very little difference between, you know, Peter and John, who were still disciples and fishing. And then when they quit their fishing, their disciples, it's the same it's the same sort of life. They're, they're still followers of Jesus. They're still disciples of Jesus. But now they're going to quit their day jobs. And we sometimes think, well, there's a big difference, a vast difference between a guy who's paid for ministry and a guy who just volunteers. And you shouldn't think that. Uh, there is definitely some difference in the sense of, um, you know, time that you can devote specifically to the Lord's family, that sort of thing. Uh, Teresa and I fellowshiped in a Plymouth Brethren church for some time when we were in Denver. And uh, we enjoyed that so much. And they did happen to have uh, a paid full-time minister. But that was somewhat rare. We visited two uh, assemblies and one did not have a paid pastor of any kind. Uh, The elders were overseeing the services and sometimes one elder would say something, sometimes another elder would say something, uh, but they oversaw the services. They were more or less equals and nobody got paid. They were they were bank people, managers, just normal, for the most part, white-collar workers, but that wasn't necessary either that they be white-collar. And that was a very pleasant church experience for us. We liked that very much. So anyway, we sometimes think, oh, well, this is big because the disciples are now full-time. It is big, but it's not that big because they followed Jesus when they were part-time and they're going to follow Jesus now when they quit their day jobs. In any case, they were following Jesus and it's the same devotion, the same discipleship. All right, so let's bring us up to speed on where things are in the career of Jesus. You see in that uh, opening paragraph there, uh, after his Passover time frame ministry in Jerusalem, that'd be March, April, is Passover, and his passage back home to Nazareth through Samaria, the woman at the well, that must be, you know, getting on into May now, and his near lynching in Nazareth, that's what we talked about last a week when he arrived in Nazareth, they wanted to throw him off the brow of a hill. And um, it says Jesus then spends the remainder of his first year of ministry in Galilee. In the summer, winter, and early spring months between Passovers 1 and 2, Jesus calls his big four disciples to full-time ministry. They've already been following him. They were his disciples back when he turned the water into wine in John chapter 2. Uh, that's March, April. And so now we're in the summer, evidently. And they're going to be full-time, but they're already disciples. So he calls his big four disciples to full-time ministry. Then Matthew as well. In addition to teaching, he also performs 12 specified miracles, plus many other unspecified miracles during this time. And uh, he had already done four miracles, the miraculous understanding of Nathaniel under the tree, uh, turning the water into wine, miraculously seeing the Samaritan woman's dark past, and miraculously eluding the lynch mob in Nazareth. So he'd been doing miracles, but now we're going to see these, these 12 specific miracles besides. 
And I've listed it for you there uh, in that next paragraph, but we're not going to read that just now. So moving Jesus' home base to Capernaum. Again, we must be summer because we were Passover, March, April, and then we were maybe about May when the fields were white unto harvest, talking to the Samaritan woman, and you come up to Nazareth, you're rejected. It's time to move from Nazareth. That's where we are. So Matthew 4.13, leaving Nazareth, where they tried to kill him. He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness have seen a great light, and to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light has sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there we are, Matthew chapter 4. Since the people of his hometown, Nazareth, tried to throw him from the brow of the hill, it makes sense that Jesus would move his base of operations elsewhere. Uh, Capernaum is very close to Nazareth, um, and so he's still in that area around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the second bolt there reminds you, Joshua assigned the land in Israel up by the Sea of Galilee for the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And when Jesus chose that area as his home base, it was spiritually as if the sun had risen on those who were otherwise disadvantaged. Again, from Isaiah, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light. Um, So that's what it was like when Jesus moved there. It was great that uh, the people around the Sea of Galilee would have Jesus ministering there uh, routinely. So from now on, we won't say that Jesus is home in Nazareth. That's where he grew up. But he moves his base of operations to Capernaum. When when Teresa and I were in Israel, we wanted to visit Capernaum and we were staying right there by the Sea of Galilee. We asked the uh, car parking attendants in the hotel, said, we want to go to Capernaum. Um, and they speak English pretty well. To Capernaum, they hadn't heard of that. And uh, they talked between themselves from a, said, oh, Kafir Nahum. And it reminded us that the word means this is the Kafir, the city of Nahum, the prophet. So, you know, Kafir Nahum, Capernaum. Uh, so anyway, and now the full-time discipleship. So you see there in Matthew 4.18 with additional information in Luke 5 and even something in Mark chapter 1. Um, I want to show you the Luke chapter 5 text. So just look at that one for a moment. Came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, also Galilee, uh, and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them, were washing their nets. He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, Peter's, and prayed him, uh, asked him that he would thrust out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the people out of that ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering, said to him, Master, we've toiled all the night, have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. When they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both ships that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the draft of fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt cast men and when they had brought their nets to land they forsook all and followed him well so if you look at the bulleted points there john andrew peter 
and other disciples had been following Jesus part-time since before his first Passover visit to Jerusalem, perhaps since February. So you remember that when uh, John the Baptist said, you know, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And uh, the disciples of John were watching that, and they left being disciples of John and began following Jesus. And people say this is a hopeless contradiction in the New Testament because in one case they're supposed to be following Jesus because of John. In another case they're out um, with the great catch of fish and then they follow Jesus. The Bibles are hopelessly contradictory in these things. Then we say, no, they're fine. It's the difference between part-time followership and full-time followership. And that's all that's happening here. Uh, So at any rate, they have been disciples for some time. Uh, maybe since February, certainly since March. Uh, And now we're in the early summer and they begin to follow full time. Uh, The second bullet point there, Matthew and Mark chose not to report about the great catch of fish that further motivated the four fishermen to follow Jesus full time. Um, I love that story in Luke 5, but it doesn't occur in the other Gospels. And the third bullet Mark's report informs us of the existence of employees continuing their work in the partner's fishing business. So this helps explain something about maybe how the ministry was funded over a period of time. So if you look at the parts that I've underlined there uh, in the Luke 5 text, it says uh, that when the number of fish was too great, they beckoned unto their partners, uh, as it turns out, Peter and Andrew brothers, beckoning to their partners, uh, James and John, beckoned to their partners. So there's a partnership. The families are in business. In verse 8, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished. In verse 10, and so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were the partners with Simon. So Simon and Andrew, Peter and Andrew, James and John are all fishing partners. But that's not all. When those four begin to follow Jesus full time, it still is okay because Mark 1.20, as you see there, says uh, they left the ship with the hired hands, the hired servants, and went after him. So not only do we have Peter, Andrew, James, John, we also have hired employees. And so the fishing business could continue without them. Uh, And that's probably, at least partly, how some of their ministry was funded at various times. So does that raise any questions or observations on the full-time discipleship, Carol? Yeah, we, we hear about uh, Peter's wife. Uh, Carol's asking, how about the other disciples? Evidently, the disciples were either all married or the vast majority of them were. In 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul is defending his apostleship, he says, you know, um, do we not have power, Barnabas and I, do we not have power to lead about a sister, a wife, like the other apostles? Like, oh. So, and he mentions Simon, like you know, Peter and the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord. So it looks like the norm was for all of those fellows to be married. Um, Paul was extraordinary. Of course, he's not in this part but we might guess that all of those fellows were married. And by the way, if they are headquartered in Capernaum, uh, that is where Peter lives. So, you know, they could, they could be around their families maybe many, many times, maybe most of the time. Uh, and then they would run down to Jerusalem periodically and, th- and that would be different. But while they're headquartered in Capernaum, they're, they're near their families. Josiah. 
Well, they, they recognize that a vow of celibacy required on their clergy is um, a new innovation. They know it's not from the New Testament, but they don't care. So that's okay, I guess. Uh, they can do whatever they want to do. Tom. Yeah. Um, so Tom is asking, you know, how does a disciple become an apostle? The word apostle just means sent one. So apa, from. Stello, I send. I send him from me, you know, go do a task. So as soon as Jesus sent the disciples out to preach, they were sent once they were apostles at that moment. And, um, and so it was natural that we would begin to, to call them. They were sent by Jesus, so we call them apostles. But then there becomes the office of apostle uh, in the sense that Jesus tells those disciples I'm going to sit you on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So now you're just not a missionary. Some people say, well, a missionary is a sent one, so I guess a missionary is an apostle. Yeah, well, that's true. A missionary is a sent one, but he's not going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So these apostles are like capital letter A apostles, and that's a little different. Uh, And and then uh, you have the signs of an apostle. So when the apostle Paul is defending his ministry to the Corinthian church again, he says, truly the signs of an, uh, of an apostle were worked among you and all patience. So now you have sign gifts added to that. And when they were choosing a replacement for Judas in the opening of Acts, they said, we want somebody who has uh, followed Jesus from the beginning. And so they ended up choosing Matthias. But anyway, all that to say this, when Jesus said, You also are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Judas falls out. Matthias is added. That's very, very uh, unique. Nothing is like that. And then when you have apostolic sign miracles, that's extraordinary. So, no, a person should not say that he is an apostle if, he doesn't have the apostolic gifts. Naturally, he's going to say that I do uh, have these apostolic gifts, so you should think of me as an apostle. But we read in Ephesians 4 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the first, uh, the, the chief cornerstone. So putting the whole theology together, apostles seem to be foundational to the church. We wouldn't need them in the superstructure. We needed them in the early days. Real apostles are going to have real signs of an apostle. And if they're really doing the signs of an apostle with no faking, no misfires, I might think it's possible that they are given the gift of apostleship. But if they even one time fake it, then clearly... Uh, there's an integrity problem, and no apostle would do that. So, no. Uh, I mean, theoretically, it's possible that you... There's nothing that says you cannot, but we expect because it's a foundational gift, and we need signs of an apostle, no misfires, there's nobody who qualifies. Yeah, that would be a problem. The only thing is, we, we must never forget that there absolutely will be more prophecy in the future. We cannot be wrong about that because Revelation 11 says that there are the two witnesses and the days of their prophecy are three and a half years.
So there's no way we can be wrong about that. There is going to be prophecy in the future. Furthermore, every implication when we read Joel 2 and Acts 2 is that when you come to the tribulation, there's going to be an increase in the sign miracles like we've never had before. That will be the greatest outpouring of the Spirit that we've ever seen, evidently, uh, similar to the Acts 2 outpouring. And that's why you see you know, a great multitude which no man can number before the throne who have come out of the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Um, in Revelation chapter 7, that's the innumerable multitude. So the greatest revival the world has ever seen, just like Joel 2, Acts 2, it's that. And again, if we're talking about the close of 1 Corinthians 14, it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. So it would be a very bad idea for us to say, no, 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 it can never happen. Tongues can never happen again. must never happen again. Prophecy must never happen again. Well, we know that prophecy is going to happen again, and every indication is that dreams and visions are going to be a very big part of the end times. So we shouldn't say that it's impossible for somebody to exercise the gifts of an apostle, the sign gifts uh, in the future. We should just demand absolute, uh, absolute integrity. And if anybody fakes it, then they are clearly uh, out of line. They're, they're, they're disqualified from any sort of credibility as spokesmen for God. So I think that's the important thing. Then if you turn that page over at the top of page 32, some of the things that start happening right away as uh, Jesus moves his headquarters to Capernaum. In the first place, we run into the healing of the nobleman's son from a distance. And uh, you remember the story. I've given you just a snatch of it here. The nobleman says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says to him, go your way, your son lives. This is the second of seven traditionally recognized sign miracles in the Gospel of John. And I've listed those for you, uh, the sign miracles. And John 4.54 says this again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. The first one being the uh, turning of the water into wine and now the healing of the nobleman's son. So that is, um, that is an extraordinary story. And you see, as soon as he goes up to Capernaum, we're off to the races with uh, lots of big ministry. The next one that comes up is the casting out of a demon on the Sabbath day in Capernaum. So Luke chapter 4, verse 33, in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. One of the things I wanted to point out about this in spiritual warfare is that you see a very literal interpretation of Scripture is expected by the world of demons. Every once in a while, somebody will say, you know, I, I am a Bible believer, but they tend to, to keep deviating toward a non-literal interpretation. You know, always looking for symbols where there doesn't need to be symbols or always looking for a loophole so that you don't have to take it in its, in its harshness. But you don't want to do that. Uh, we see that the demons, and I'll show you this on a couple of occasions over the next couple of weeks, uh, the demons have a very literal interpretation of Scripture. And uh, so anyway, you see the bulleted point there. A literal interpretation of even the most harsh statements of judgment in Scripture is necessary. 
Notice how in the trenches of great spiritual warfare, a literal interpretation of judgment and hell is assumed. This demon cried out to Jesus, leave us alone. Are you here to destroy us? Demons do not believe that God's love overlooks evil. In Luke 8, 28, the demons express belief in literal torment. And in a future time of fearful judgment, they say, I beseech thee, torment me not. And are you come to torment us before the time? And they even believe in the pit of hell, according to Luke 8, 31. They besought him that he would not command them to go into the pit, uh, the deep, the abyss, where the dead wait for judgment. And interesting that we think, oh, you know, God's judgment, it can't be what all these Christians say it's going to be, what all the, you know, Bible bashers say it's going to be. But look how the demons talk. Are you going to destroy us? Are you going to torment us? Are you going to throw us in the abyss? They have a very literal interpretation of the judgment passages of God. So sometimes a person will say, well, do you think it's really an abyss? Do you think it's really torment? I mean, torment? Would God do that? I just don't see God doing that. Well, they do. And um, in the trenches of spiritual warfare, you always appreciate a very literal interpretation of Scripture. And that's why Peter says only the unlearned and unstable people twist it. You don't want to twist the Scripture. If it says torment, it means torment. If it says pit, it means pit. If it says destroy, it means destroy. And you don't want to think, oh, God wouldn't do that. Because in the unseen world, it's all quite literal. And uh, God is a judge, and you have to face that. Does that raise any questions or observations? All right. So, healing Peter's mother-in-law and many others in Capernaum in one day. So, Mark one thirty-one, He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. Luke 4.39. He stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered. So she had this fever. Uh, she lives in Capernaum. Jesus goes and heals the fever, and she immediately jumps up and starts to serve coffee or whatever was the tradition there. And not only that, but in one day, many others. So you see in the Luke 440 text, we just talked about the mother-in-law, and it says in verse, uh, verse 40, And when the sun was setting... All they that had any sick with various diseases brought them unto him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. And so all that, when the sun was setting. So many miracles in one day. And once again, you see in Capernaum, there's a lot happening in a very short period of time. And uh, just one thing on the side that's kind of interesting. I always tell this, what I hope is somewhat humorous illustration, when somebody tries to extrapolate from the Bible a theory, an opinion that's not in the Bible. And I have always found it somewhat helpful to say, well, you know that story where Peter's... By the way, I didn't make this up. I just repeat it from everybody else. Uh, when Peter's mother-in-law was sick from a fever, do you know why? And they say, no. They said, I do. It's because Peter shot her with a twenty-two pistol and she had a fever from it. And they say, the Bible doesn't say that. And I say, well, the Bible doesn't say he didn't shoot her. And 
that's an illustration of what happens when you read things into the Bible. A lot of people say the Bible teaches this or the Bible teaches that. I always like to say what the Bible teaches is not nearly as important as what the Bible says. What does it say? Because everybody has the Bible teaching all these off-the-wall doctrines. What does it say? All it says is that his mother-in-law had a fever. And so let us leave it at that. We don't know. And let us not assume. So there are many times when false doctrines are built on an idea, an idea that is uh, requiring something that simply is not in the Bible. And uh, you shouldn't do that. It's, it's easy to do that, but you shouldn't allow yourself to do that. So somebody will say, well, you know the doctrine of slaying in the Spirit? That's in the Bible. Like, oh, where is that in the Bible? Well, you know, when the Apostle John in Revelation 1 sees a vision of the Lord and he falls at his feet as dead, that he was slain in the Spirit. And if I say, the Bible doesn't say he was slain in the Spirit, they'll say, well, it just is. And then it's time. Well, you know how Peter's mother-in-law got a fever. You'd, if the Bible doesn't say it was slain in the Spirit, why are you saying that? I mean, you could possibly be right, but let's not be dogmatic here. That's not what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is always way, way more important than what the Bible teaches, so-called teaches. What does it say? And if there's no information, then let it, let it be that way and, and don't make it up. So that's that. Many lessons and miracles in the region of Galilee. So Matthew 4.23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, not just Capernaum, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness, all manner of diseases among the people. His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken of diverse diseases and torments and those that were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those that had palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond Jordan. So many lessons, many miracles. Once he goes to Capernaum again, things are happening uh, at a very rapid pace. Uh, the next major story is healing the man with leprosy. And this is from Matthew chapter 8. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. That's very good doctrine. Uh, when that fellow says, Lord, if you wish to, you can make me well. You can take away this leprosy if you wish to. And I love that because that really is the crux of a righteous prayer. Lord, if you wish to do this, I know that you can. And obviously the request is, will you consider it? Will you do it for me? And in this case, Jesus says, I do wish to make you well, and I will. But what's so great about that is the doctrine of the Lord's will, and, and of course Jesus prayed that way, not my will, but thine be done. He taught us you know, by example to do that. And uh, that's just such a great way to pray. No matter what you want, even if you desperately want it, you say, Lord, if you wish it, 
I know you can do this. And, and your prayer is now conditioned on the Lord's wishes. And if you, if you understand that the Lord cannot wisely do certain things. Of course, he can do anything. But he cannot do wisely certain things. I've had an illustration of this recently in my own life where um, I did something for someone that was not technically perfectly wise. Um, I did it for love's sake. But I knew that I was kind of helping him make a mistake. But I did it anyway because I love him. And when I did it, I thought, there's a better way to do this. But for the sake of his morale, his impression of Christ in the Christian life, I'm going to do this because the love component seems to be more important in this case than the perfect wisdom component. And I always wonder if God faces a similar um, mixture of emotions when we ask him to do certain things for us. And you wonder if he will, we know he has mixed emotions, you know, God has mixed emotions. He's not willing that any should perish, but he's willing that they should. I mean, they do. And he could have prevented it. He could not wisely prevent it. But anyway, all of that to say this, the Lord can do anything, but he can't wisely do a lot of things. It wouldn't be smart. It wouldn't be best. And so that whole idea of what happens if the Lord thinks it's best to um, turn loose the leash of the devil and let the devil attack you? What if he thinks that's best? It's best because it gives you the opportunity to show yourself a soldier of Jesus, to show yourself a loyal soldier of Jesus, a loyal lover. So he lets go of the leash of the devil and the devil attacks you and hurts you somehow. Here's the question. Will you kiss the hand that let go of the leash? Or will you resent it? The Lord could have kept the devil from doing that. But he could not wisely keep the devil from attacking you because this is your chance to shine. And everybody needs a chance to shine. So in the book of James, my brothers count it all joy when you fall into diverse, various temptations. Count it all joy. Will you kiss the hand that swings the rod? And hopefully the answer is yes. Because even though the Lord could keep you from hardship, he could not wisely keep you from hardship. And so you have the prayer, Lord, if you wish me to get better, I can get better. If you wish me to have a promotion, I'll have a promotion. If you wish me to have success in this endeavor, I'll have success in this endeavor. If you wish it, I know you can make it so. But you're saying, we wonder if you can wisely do it. Can you wisely give me a promotion? Can you wisely give me good health? And if the answer is no, God cannot wisely do it, 
then we don't want him to do it. And so we have a very good lesson in spiritual prayer from a man with leprosy. Does that raise any questions or observations? Rod. Yeah, that's great. That's right. When Jesus says, I, I will, I, I wish to do it. Uh, that's great. And it really doesn't sound very much like television faith healers, does it? Okay, so one more story that we want to cover tonight, and that's the stilling of the storm, Matthew chapter 8. When he was entered into his ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, and so much that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him, awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. He saith unto them, Why are you fearful, ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. In Mark chapter 4, the same parallel account, uh, the disciples say, Lord, cares thou not that we perish? Do you not even care that we perish? And that's so interesting because, of course, the Lord cares, but he simply doesn't believe you're perishing. Uh, so you think, Lord, don't you care? I'm perishing over here. And yeah, the Lord cares, but you're not perishing. You, that's your opinion. You think you're perishing. You're not perishing. You're all right. Uh, and in a sense, you know, even if you are perishing physically, you're prospering spiritually if you're walking with Jesus. So we're, we're saying the Lord must not care. And the actual truth is that the Lord does care. He doesn't agree with your opinion about perishing. That's the problem. You're not perishing. You're fine. Relax. Uh, even if you die in Jesus, you're not perishing. You're okay. Relax. So we always say, oh, I'm perishing and the Lord doesn't care. But the Lord does care. We're wrong about that part. He does care. And you're not perishing. You're wrong about that part too. You're wrong from start to finish. Relax. You're not perishing. You're okay. And if you sense that, uh, then maybe you won't think the Lord is uncaring. And I do love uh, the song, um, Master of the Tempest is Raging. And I quoted part of that in the last bullet point on the bottom of page 32. Sleeping on the, in the storm, as Jesus was doing, sleeping in the storm is possible if we believe, as the song says, whether the wrath of the storm tossed sea or demons or men or whatever it be, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. What are you thinking? He's the master of all of this. The ship's not going down. Or if it does go down, who cares? It's going to be okay. He's the master. And... Um, so stilling the storm and uh, the Lord, the Lord is on the ship with you. He's in the storm with you. Say, don't you care that we're perishing? The Lord does care, but you're not perishing. And the truth is, if you're in the ship with Jesus, it's not going to go down. This has a happy ending. You're going to be okay. So that's what it was like in the opening months in Capernaum. Does that raise any questions or observations? Joanne. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You're right. If we had all the information, we would realize that we're not perishing. We're okay. Uh, Helen, yeah, that's a great idea. The Lord will always do what's right, and uh, we count on that. Tom, that's a really good question. I think so. Uh, the example of Balaam comes to mind. He kept insisting and insisting and insisting, and finally the Lord let him go. But if Balaam was smart, he said, uh, I changed my mind. I'm just going to do what you said in the first place. I don't want to come under condemnation. But by pestering enough, the Lord let him go. Uh, that was very unusual. But evidently, that is a possibility. <laughs>